0: to hide behind. Brian and David can be without something to hold on to, but I need something to keep from falling over. I guess word didn't get out to the people during the second hour that David was gone. It got out clearly to the first hour. It was uh, Sally, Carol, and I, and about three or four other people. But uh... Last week, David took a diversion to talk about the possibilities of developing this building and the property we have, but this morning we're back on the series on miracles. We have uh, looked at, I think, 25 miracles so far over the months, and we have five more to go Then we will have examined every one of the recorded miracles of Christ. Some of you are thinking that if we ever get through this series, it will be a miracle in itself. But uh, this morning we are going to be looking at Luke 17. As I was um, reading the context, the, the passages that come before this passage, and the ones that follow, I realized what the lesson was that Jesus was trying to teach. The lesson taught in our passage is that most of us, sadly, miss the point when it comes to our salvation. Missing the point um, is something that we all do from one time or another. Sometimes it can be pretty humorous, and especially when it uh, is children, uh, students who maybe you've explained something very carefully to, and they've heard every one of your words, and they get most of the words right, but it's obvious they had no clue what you were talking about couple of months ago there was an article circulating the staff mailboxes and in it was um, a compilation of bloopers by eighth grade history students. A bunch of teachers had gotten together and put, in th- put these together and it just showed from what the students wrote in their tests or in their book reports that they were there for the lecture, or they, were, they read the material, but they had no idea what it was talking about. Let me uh, read some of these to you. I picked a few that were appropriate for a Sunday morning. There were several pages of it, but I just picked a handful. Let me read a couple of Bible history uh, information. The Bible is full of interesting caricatures. In the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. One of their children, Cain, asked, Am I my brother's son, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Montezuma. (laughs) Jacob, son of Isaac, stole his brother's birthmark. Uh, God, or excuse me, Jacob was a patriarch who brought up his 12 sons to be patriarchs, but they didn't take to it. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, gave refuse to the children of Israel. Pharaoh forced the Hebrew slaves to make bread without any straw. Moses led them to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. (laughs) Afterwards, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. David was a Hebrew king who was skilled at playing the lyre. He fought the philatelists, a race of people who lived in biblical times. Solomon... One of David's sons had 500 wives and 500 porcupines. (laughs) And there's a couple here from Greek history as well. Some of these you have to think a little bit about. He says, actually, Homer was not written by Homer, but by another man of the same name. (laughs) Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who went around giving people advice. They killed him. Socrates died from an overdose of wedlock. Okay, now finally a few from American history. These are appropriate on the 4th of July weekend. He says, um, the American Revolution was partly caused by the fact that the British put tax in their tea. George Washington married Martha Curtis and in due time became the father of our country. Then the Constitution of the United States was adopted to secure the domestic hostility. Under the Constitution, the people enjoyed the right to keep bare arms. Here's my favorite section. Abraham Lincoln became America's greatest precedent. Lincoln's mother died in infancy. He was born in a log cabin, which he built with his own hands. (laughs) Some of these, like I said, you got to think about. It. They sound good for a while. When Lincoln was, pres- was president, he wore only a tall silk hat. Abraham Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address while traveling from Washington to Gettysburg on the back of an envelope. He also signed the Emasculation Proclamation. And the Fourteenth Amendment gave ex-Negroes citizenship. On the night of April 14th, 1865, Lincoln went to the theater and got shot in his seat by one of the actors in a moving picture show. The believed assinator was John Wilkes Booth, a supposed insane actor. This ruined Booth's career. <laughs> Like I said, when uh, when people miss the point, often it is funny. Often it's entertaining. But unfortunately, sometimes it's not funny. Sometimes it hurts. I was talking to a gentleman recently, a man in his early 60s. His family is all grown. And he was telling me with real sadness in his voice that he's just now coming to realize that he missed the point. He had... um, provided well for his family, had thrown himself into his career. He had excelled at what he did and been promoted and advanced. But as he looked back now that he was retired and realized that his job really didn't matter, that his wife and his children were strangers, he knew that he had missed the point. Now, he wasn't uh, uh, grossly negligent or, or thoughtless. In fact, he was a very responsible father and husband. But being responsible, being respectable is not the point at all. He'd missed the point in his relationship with his family. And there's another relationship that's far more important. And unfortunately, most of us consistently miss the point. You know, let's not wait until we're at the close of our lives and looking back and say with sadness in our voice that we missed the point. Well, look with me into Luke 17. Later, I want to look at the passage that comes before it and the one after it. But for now, let me just read over these verses real quickly. Starting with verse 11 of Luke 17. And it came about, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a certain village, and as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, and giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Well, Jesus was traveling um, probably from the west to the east, traveling across the border between Galilee in the north, which was a Jewish section, and Samaria. ...to the south, which was non-Jewish, which was populated by Samaritans. And as he was going through this area, he came into a little village. Apparently it was a mixed village with both Jews and Samaritans. And he runs into these ten men with leprosy, most of whom were Jewish, at least one of whom was a Samaritan. Now this isn't the first time Jesus has encountered leprosy. Um, back in chapter 5 of Luke, a couple years before this a man with leprosy came running up to Jesus and threw himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus stood him up and hugged the man to himself. And as he did that, the man was cleansed. And Jesus said to the man, Go and show yourself to the priests and don't tell anyone. But the guy couldn't do that. He headed for Jerusalem, but he had to tell everyone he saw. He couldn't help it. He couldn't keep it to himself. And as a result, word got out. Crowds started showing up to see Jesus do miracles. And apparently his reputation had gone before him. So then when he went into this city, these ten guys waylaid him. They said, here's our chance. Here's somebody that can help us. Notice Jesus tells these guys basically the same thing that he told the uh, fellow back in Luke 5. He says, go and show yourself to the priests. Now the reason he did that is, is partly because the priests in those days were kind of like public health inspectors. They would be the ones to determine whether somebody was healthy or needed to be quarantined. They also would inspect food to make sure it was properly prepared. They would inspect garments to make sure they passed inspection. But I think in the case of of, of leprosy, it's a little bit more than just seeing the health inspector. Leprosy is treated differently than any other disease in the Old Testament. Even other highly contagious or, or, or fatal diseases. Leprosy was singled out and associated with sin. Now, it's not that leprosy is somehow uh, uniquely caused by sin or particularly sinful in itself. It's that in the Old Testament, leprosy was the the symbol for sin, kind of the 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 visual, the visual lesson for sin. In fact, when David Roper was teaching on Luke 5, Uh, As we went through that miracle, the way he put it was if sin could be seen on the body, it would look like leprosy. You see, leprosy deforms, it disfigures, and it destroys. What it does, one of the things it does, is it attacks the connecting tissue between the bones and the hands and the feet. And so fingers and toes start to fall off. And spongy, tumor-like swelling shows up on the face and the body. Ulcers begin to form. It also becomes systemic and attacks the internal organs as well as the skin. And the skin itself, the nerve endings become desensitized so that the person with leprosy will wound themselves or burn themselves and not even know it. And it will become infected and the sores will grow and further disfigure and further, further disable the person. Gradually, slowly, leprosy progresses, takes over more and more of the person, rots the person, kills them. Well, sin is the same way. It ruins us. It rots us. It makes us become insensitive. It desensitizes us so we don't even notice. We're not even aware of how our lives and the people around us are being destroyed. We see some of the slow, gradual effects. I mean, we stare in wonder as a finger falls off. But we have no idea why. We look for somebody to blame or something to blame. Rather than realizing it's the sin in us that's destroying us. Because unlike leprosy, sin doesn't show up on the skin. Other people don't notice it. Yet still inside, we're dying. And like leprosy... In in biblical times, there's a cure for leprosy now, but in biblical times there was, as David put it, no earthly cure. You could go after its symptoms in one area or really aggressively fight them there only to discover that it's been silently eating away at another area of your life. Jesus is the only one who can heal. Jesus is the only one who can cleanse. So for public health reasons as well as because of this association between leprosy and sin, the Old Testament gives very specific rules and and procedures to deal with leprosy. If somebody was suspected of having leprosy, they'd be taken to the priest and the priest would follow a very specific procedure for examining the person, isolating them for a week, re-examining them, and it would go on until finally a determination was made. And if it was determined that this person did in fact have leprosy, that person would from then on be treated as if they were dead. The, uh, the person would be isolated. If anyone came in contact with them, they would become unclean. The person coming in contact would become unclean, just like they would become unclean if they came in contact with a dead body. The leper was required to tear his clothes and to mess up his hair, throw ashes on himself, which were the traditional, the typical uh, signs of mourning for the dead. They were forced out of the community. They had to live outside. Often they were forced to live in the graveyards, find shelter among the tombs. They were not allowed to come in. They were not allowed to have anybody come near them. If somebody approached them, they had to start shouting, unclean, unclean, so the person would be warned off and wouldn't come near them. They were the walking dead. And with, with sores and with, with the disfigurement, they probably even looked somewhat like the zombies of the Night of the Living Dead. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that, um, that horror classic on television. In it is one of Brian Fisher's favorite all-time movie lines. In the movie, these dead people are coming back to life and they're going around trying to munch people. And the good guys are shooting them. And this one sheriff who's been out shooting zombies is being interviewed by the television reporter. And... Looks in the camera and says, yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. (laughs) That's Brian's favorite line. You can tell him about it when you see him next. But see, the same thing is true of us while we live in sin. Scripture says we're dead. We're all messed up. In fact, uh, David pointed out a couple of weeks ago when he taught on on Luke 5 that we are born dead. The way he put it was stone cold dead. We came out of the womb. See, we're the walking dead unless we receive cleansing at the hands of our Lord. And, and understanding that relationship between leprosy and sin, the symbolic relationship, helps us understand our passage here in Luke. In fact, every time you run into leprosy in the New Testament, there's a message even beyond God's grace, God's willingness to, to heal. God's willingness, His compassion for the person with leprosy. There's something more profound being said about His willingness to heal us from sin. So, these ten men stood at a distance and pleaded for mercy. They kept their distance because they, they respected the law. The law did not allow them to approach Jesus. They knew that it would be inappropriate for them to come nearer. In fact, they probably felt unworthy to approach Jesus. I think it's interesting that they cried out for mercy, knowing that Jesus had no obligation really to do anything for them, but counting on, hoping on his character that he is, is good, that he's merciful. They don't cry out in indignation, saying, This is so unfair. I never asked to have leprosy. I don't deserve to have leprosy. I deserve better than this. They weren't wallowing in self-pity. You know, when we begin to see the effects of sin in our lives, the, the effects of our own sin, isolating us, separating us from other people, robbing us of peace, and the effects of other people's sins, wounding us deeply, leaving us a, a struggling with our, 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 our self-worth, And our adequacy. When we see these things, it's very easy to become preoccupied with the unfairness of it all. You know, those feelings are normal, but we cannot allow those feelings to so trap us, to so distract us, that we fail to come to the one who can heal us. Self pity and bitterness are understandable but they're also absolutely worthless. They may feel like old friends, but they're not. They're parasites. They're, they're leeches, which would keep us from being healed so they can continue to live on us. We need healing, so we must cry out to the Lord. Turn to Him, in spite of our fear, in spite of our insecurity of how He might respond knowing that he has no obligation to help us, but also realizing what kind of person he is. He's kind and he's generous. Well, these guys, these ten men, when they cry out to Jesus, he responds. He tells them what to do. And when you think about it, at this point, their faith is pretty startling. You know, they still looked exactly like they had a few seconds before. and They had not been healed yet, but still they turn around and they head for Jerusalem. To go see the priest. They turn and obey. Now they didn't balk at the simplicity of it. They didn't want something more dramatic. They didn't balk at the absurdity of it, the the, you know, the, the potential embarrassment. They get all the way to Jerusalem, see the priest, the priest says, What are you doing here? Get out of here. They look like fools. Now they didn't balk, they turned and obeyed. And when they did, they were healed. They probably were looking at each other and seeing the transformation taking place and saying, you know, the sores, they're disappearing, they're gone. And hearing the others say, so are yours. They look quickly at their hands and their fingers are straight and strong. And there may have still been scars, but they were healed. That's the way faith works. We cry out to the Lord for mercy. Trusting His goodness. And He heals us. He tells us what to do. We turn and obey. And as we do that, we are healed. That's all there is to it. At least that's the way it starts. Now this incident could have ended right here. It would have been a good lesson. We would have caught um, a, a glimpse of how gracious, how merciful, how ready to heal our Lord is. In fact, we could have stopped my sermon here and you could have gone home. Had an early lunch. Got your kids out of Sunday school early. But it doesn't stop here. In fact, this is where it really gets good. Here's where the real lesson starts. Nine of these guys obeyed. One of them delayed. He turned back, risking everything. Risking losing his healing. I mean, the magic could have worn off. He was healed as he turned toward Jerusalem. Maybe if he turned around and went back, he would be unhealed. He'd get back his his disease. Or maybe Jesus would be mad for for uh, disobeying him. At least the people around Jesus would probably be annoyed and angered by the fact that he came and exposed them to becoming unclean because if they were too close to him before he received purification by the priests... They would become uncleans. So he risked their anger. He risked all of this. Why? The only thing that I can see that motivates such risk is that he was in love. Jesus had loved him. And he couldn't help it. He loved Jesus back. And he wanted to express that love. You see, love makes us reckless. I think this is what Jesus is talking about in the last chapter. In chapter 16 of Luke, he refers to some people who take the kingdom by force. This guy was so overwhelmed, so overjoyed with with gratitude and with love that he was reckless. He was coming and there was nothing going to stand in his way. He was going to get to the one that he loved and tell him that he loved him and say thank you. Again, love motivates us to take risks. And often, we don't even realize what we're risking. We're oblivious to it. I remember when I first fell in love with Becky, my wife. We had known each other for a while, um, and I had admired her considerably, and even had very strong feelings for her. But I really had absolutely no rational reason to think that she cared that I existed. But somehow... It seemed the appropriate thing for me to go to her and tell her I loved her. Now, uh, that was taking a risk. In fact, in my case, that was being downright presumptuous and foolhardy. But at the time, like I said, it seemed the only thing to do. It was, I was virtually compelled. It was tell her or burst. Because love, again, motivates us to get at the object. Of, of our love and to express that somehow. It re- demands it, it pushes us. Well, how does Jesus respond? He's disappointed. He's disappointed. But not with this guy. He's disappointed that the other nine missed the point of it all. In fact, you get the feeling he is delighted with this guy. He says, Here is one who sees deeper, here is one who understands. This guy that came back was not disregarding obedience. He just realized that there was something of more immediate importance to be taken care of. This guy treats Jesus as a person, not as some vending machine that dispenses favors. This guy treats Jesus with integrity, knowing Jesus didn't have to do that. That that was a generous, that was a kind choice on Jesus' part. This guy treats Jesus as a person. So one leper worships first. One leper expresses his love first, then obeys. Jesus uh, sadly asks, where are the others? Now Jesus never demanded their gratitude. He never demanded their worship. But he's disappointed at at its absence. They really hadn't done anything wrong. They had done exactly what Jesus had told them to do. But they missed the point. Jesus had not cleansed them so that they could go merrily on their way, feeling better about themselves, more able to function in society, restored back to their, their normal lives and busy agendas. Jesus had healed them, He had cleansed them, so that they could then approach Him and worship Him and express their love to Him and enjoy the delight of an intimate love relationship with Him. And now here's the point. This is the point of this whole talk this morning. In fact, if you're sleeping, wake up. You can go back to sleep in about 30 seconds. This is it. This is the point that we cannot miss. Jesus has not delivered us from sin so that we can better cope with the priorities and preoccupations of our lives. Jesus has not delivered us from sin so we can feel better about ourselves and relate more positively. Jesus has not delivered us from sin So we can go merrily about our lives. Though we are perfectly free to do that if we choose. Just like those nine were perfectly free to go about their life. Healed and enjoying the benefit of that healing. We are perfectly free to go about our lives. Delivered. Freed. And enjoy the benefit of that forgiveness of our sins. But the reason, the purpose, the goal, the point Jesus had in freeing us, in saving us, in delivering us, forgiving us. The point in healing us and cleansing us from sin is so that we can now approach Him. So that we can express our gratitude to Him. So that we can express our love to Him and enjoy the delight of an intimate love relationship with Him. Now again, realize these nine guys were not doing bad things. They were doing the correct thing. They were doing the good thing. The religious thing. They were going to see the priest just like the Bible said. But they missed the point. And we can occupy ourselves doing good things. Doing healthy and helpful and constructive and valuable things. um, uh, Studying our Bibles going to church, giving 10% of everything we earn, having our family devotions, and still we miss the point. We were not saved to do these things, as good as they may be. We were saved so that we can approach God, so that we can spend time with Him, so that we can enjoy our fellowship with Him. We can express our love and our gratitude. And experience the delight of that intimate relationship with Him. You know, it happens so often that someone becomes a Christian. They finally give up their pride and their self-pity. They realize their need. They turn to the Lord, cry out for mercy. And He heals them. And they're thrilled. They're overjoyed. But very quickly, they get taught all the right things to do and they occupy their lives doing all the right things, and they miss the point of it. They don't know why, they don't know how, but somehow they know they've missed it. They're just not sure where. We don't know why, we don't know how, but somehow we know we've missed the point of it. We're just not sure where. Forty years ago, the great expositor, H.A. Ironsides, lamented... There is so little real worship on the part of Christian people today. Even when believers come together, so often it is not to worship God. Do we realize God is seeking worshipers? I'm afraid too many of us have the idea that He's seeking workers. But there's something that must come before work, and that is worship. To be in the presence of God with a heart filled with adoration means more to Him than to busy ourselves in His service. We shall not serve any less acceptably or earnestly because we worship first. Well, Jesus notices that the only one of these ten guys, the only one of these ten lepers, to get the point is a foreigner. He makes a point of that. Both Luke and Jesus make a point of that. This guy was a Samaritan. In fact, the word he uses for foreigner is the word that went on the temple wall to exclude all non-Jews from the temple under penalty of death. You see, this guy was not from the community of faith. He did not grow up in a Christian home. Paul says, being a Jew is an advantage in every respect. And I would say in the same way, growing up in a Christian home, being a Christian for a while, is an advantage in every respect. But it can also be an enormous liability because we become so familiar with the right things to do the right responses, that our relationship becomes mechanical. We're no longer responding directly to God from the heart. Sometimes it would be better not to know the right thing to do and just respond from the heart. I can remember a young woman who came in when I was counseling at the church I interned in California. I was on call she came in. She had been part of a motorcycle gang. She's a very pretty young lady. She had real colorful, beautiful tattoos up one arm and on her other shoulder. And she wanted to meet the Lord. She wanted to become a Christian. Somebody had told her this was the place to come. So she came in, and with a very brief introduction, she dove headfirst into a relationship with the Lord. And she was so overwhelmed, so delighted. It was so refreshing to see her enthusiasm for the Lord. But after a while, she couldn't contain herself. And I can remember the awkwardness and the um, kind of the puzzlement on the people who had been there for a while trying to figure out how to respond to the things she was saying. She'd say stuff like, damn, the Lord is good. And everybody would go, yes, I, 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 think, I think so. <laughs> but I also remember how they, how they caught on, how her enthusiasm was contagious, how she brought the whole group to realize this is the way. It's supposed to be. See, I don't think we realize the enormous treasure that we have. It's like somebody's given us a check for a million dollars. We take that check, we stick it up on the wall because it's such a beautiful check. But we never cash it. We never enjoy it. We miss the whole point of what a check is, what a check is for. We just leave it there to be admired and to be enjoyed and to feel good that we have it. We miss the whole point. We were created to have fellowship with God. We were created to express gratitude and praise to God. That's what we were made for. That's what we do. That's what our hearts long for. Expressing worship and gratitude to God is what life is all about. In fact, it's what makes life life. Uh, Many of us have the notion that that somehow praise or or worship is kind of a a boring, I don't know, obligation that we are supposed to do, at least on Sunday mornings, because we were told to. But nothing can be farther from the truth. You know, who told this guy to turn around, risking everything, and run back to Jesus' feet and throw himself at Jesus' feet and tell Jesus how grateful he was and how much he loved him? Who has to tell a lover to tell his lover how wonderful she is? you know, as we're standing at the feet of the satus, looking up, overwhelmed by their, their majesty, who has to tell us to say, those are beautiful? Nobody. Nobody has to tell us. This praise kind of automatically, inevitably flows out of our enjoyment, flows out of the fact that we are awake to beauty that our eyes are open to intimacy, to things that have value. Praise is at once both the expression as well as the experience of delight, of joy, of ecstasy. We were made to praise, and it's as we praise that we enjoy. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, "I think we delight to express what we enjoy, because the praise not merely compliment, or not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is It's a appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people you are with care no more for it than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. See, we have access to a relationship that is more open, more close, uh, more intimate, more secure than any relationship any two lovers have ever experienced. We have access to a being, a, a person of such beauty, of such wisdom, of such goodness, of kindness, generosity, that if we were given too great a glimpse too quickly we would burst before we could get our praise out sufficiently, before we could express our gratitude. Now, we may not realize this. We may, may not be experiencing this, but that's because we're like the nine, walking on our way, delighted to be saved, but without realizing what we have. Our eyes are closed. We've not started to think about it. We've not started to explore it. We have not started to enjoy what Jesus was willing to die to obtain for us. We miss the point of our salvation. Let me make uh, one more uh, point from the passage we're looking at, and then I want to jump back and look at the context on on either side. But uh, look at verse 19. And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has literally saved you. He said, Rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. I see Jesus saying this with a big smile. He looks to this guy and he says, he says, you trusted me. You believed in me. You knew that I would accept you. You got it. That's what it's all about. You got the point. Now get up. And go, do what I told you to do. You know, when we finally take the risk, have the courage to approach Jesus, that's what He does. He affirms us. He affirms that we are saved. He affirms that we are His. That's God's response to faith. Is affirmation is assurance. And that's what our hearts long for. Well, jump back with me to verse 7. This is what Jesus says immediately prior to the miracle that we were looking at. He says, But which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Did you hear that? If you are looking for affirmation, if you are looking for assurance by running around and doing all the things that you think you're supposed to be doing, all the things you've been told to do, all the things that Scripture says to do, it won't work. You'll get to the end and listen to how you'll feel. Listen to what you'll say to yourself. So you too, when you've done the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Who prays enough I've never had anybody tell me they pray enough. Who reads their Bible enough? Who serves as much as they possibly could? Who gives as much as they possibly could? You see, it's impossible to do more than you should. Realize these are good things, that Jesus is looking for servants. God does want us to be His bond slaves. But what He wants even more is friends. Friends. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. And expressing gratitude, expressing affirmation, bonds friends together. And as we we take the risk, as we trust Him enough to approach Him, we receive the, the assurance and the affirmation that our hearts have been longing for. Now jump with me the other way, down to the other end of the passage, verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. If you have a New American Standard, you have in your midst, but if you look in the margin, it's literally... The kingdom of God is within you. If you have the NIV, the New International Version, it already translates it that way. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not with outward show. You don't have to run over here to find it or run over there to find it. It's within you. Now you may be asking, okay, how do I get the point? How do I express my love to the Lord? I mean, this guy with leprosy, he could run up to Jesus and throw himself... At his feet and start talking to him. Well, how do we do that? Where is he? Well, the kingdom of God is within you. There is a place in each of us that needs to be cultivated. The uh, saints of the last generation used to refer to it as the inner garden. William Barclay refers to it as the hidden staircase in each of our hearts. The Apostle Paul talks about the heavenlies or heavenly places. It's a place inside us where we go, where we learn to go, to spend time enjoying our Lord. It's a place where we need to cultivate. For most of us, uh, the door to that garden is hard to find at first. In fact, most of us have papered over the door to the staircase and have to peel some of that wallpaper off and find it but it's there in each of our hearts if we belong to the Lord. It may take some concentration. For some of you, it's best, it's easiest to close your eyes and imagine yourself there with the Lord. For some, it's less distracting to keep your eyes open. But the point is to 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 shut out all the commotion of our lives and to just be quiet, to be still in our hearts, to be with God, to sense his presence and to say to him words of gratitude, words of praise. This is slightly different than uh, what most of us would consider a prayer time. We may uh, ask for things, we may bring up concerns that we have for people or for things, but the difference is that the focus here is just being with him, enjoying his presence C.S. Lewis again said, It is so much easier to pray than to go see him. In fact, it's not easy at all to spend time there. It's hard for most of us. Most of us um, are frightened to go there. Most of us have never stopped and looked inside. We're afraid of what he might show us. We're afraid of the demands he might make on us. We are afraid that he's got something against us and would rather not hear about it but when we finally risk it we finally take courage hoping in his goodness and go and spend time with him what he does is he smiles real big and he says you trusted me you believed in me you knew I'd accept you you got it that's what it's all about you got the point point." and he's delighted with us he affirms us now, there's a lot more that can be said, a lot more hints about what to do and how to start these times. For many of us, it's, it's very difficult, it's very awkward. We don't know what to say, but that's all right. That's the way relationships are. You get more comfortable with time. You get more comfortable not saying anything, but just being with Him. Something that we, uh, you know, like I said, people could share what they do and how they do it. But really, you'll pick up all of these hints, you'll pick up all of these little things just by going ahead and doing it. This morning we're going to be taking communion together. That um, is uh, the, the first Sunday of the month. And I think it's kind of fortunate that communion is a time when we are encouraged to remember our Lord, to remember that He allowed His body to be broken, His blood to be poured out for us, to realize that the purchase of our forgiveness, our healing, our cleansing from sin, was that important to Him that He was willing to die. He was willing to go all the way out of love because He knew how valuable that would be to us. And so this is a time to remember that. But it's also a good time to practice what I've just preached. To just take some time and to quietly in your heart go be with him. So in a few seconds I'm going to start, I'm going to pray, and the ushers are going to come forward and, and pass out the bread. And after that, I'm not going to say anything. I'd like you to just be quiet, go to that inner garden, that that inner staircase, and spend time with him. Maybe just start by saying I love you and telling him thank you for purchasing your freedom from sin, for delivering you, from, for, for cleansing you. After that, the two of you are on your own. You can figure out what to do there. Like I said, it may be awkward, especially if you've not done this kind of thing before, especially if you're not used to it. But that's all right. Again, that's the way relationships are. They may be a little awkward at first, but you'll get used to it. If you're here for the first time, if you're new here and you're wondering, realize you're all welcome to join us. Uh, You don't have to be a member of this church to to share in communion. You're perfectly welcome to to join in in the the taking of the the bread and the wine. I just ask that you hold it until everyone has been served and then we will take it together. So let's pray. Lord, we do praise you that you were willing to die so that we could live. And I just confess, Lord, how the majority of the time I I miss the point. I run around doing the things I think I'm supposed to be doing, and I neglect approaching you. I neglect coming to you. I waste this great salvation that you've given. Lord, this morning, as we remember your death, as we remember the price you paid for us, we want to be reminded to take advantage of it. To enjoy what it was intended to give to us. A, re, a, a, a renewed access to you. The ability to approach you. To, to express our love and our gratitude. And to hear you speak words of affirmation. To hear you speak words of assurance. Lord, as we approach, just uh, we just are going to be quiet hear you speak to us, listen to you, let you speak as well as telling you of our own love for you. Lord, I pray that in this week to come, that you would remind us to draw us back to that garden, draw us back to that that place to be with you. We just praise you for your word, which draws us back to center over and over and over again. Amen.